Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to the Heroes Podcast Network. Hello and welcome back to Red Shirts and Runabouts, part of the Heroes Podcast Network. We're your weekly Star Trek podcast. We talk all things news, TV shows, movies, video games, and basically anything Trek. Try to interact with the people out there. Uh, We're continuing our Star Trek Picard watch. And before we dive into the content, I'm your regular host, Greg Bosco. And with me as always is Mr. Derek. Say hello, my friend. Hello, hello. Welcome back. Jolan True. You know. Joe True. <laughs> um, and before we actually dive into Picard, Derek, I know there's some pretty big news for the Kansas City area coming up with uh, with an event. Why don't you talk about that? Yes. So if you are in the Kansas City area or you feel like coming to the Kansas City area, uh, the weekend of March 20th through 22nd, that is Planet Comic Con. And Greg and I will be hosting along with two guests a live panel episode of red shirts and runabouts it'll be on saturday march 21st at 4 30 p.m and you can come and see us we're calling it the star trek universe panel we'll be discussing uh things that have been in production things that are rumored to be in production discovery uh we'll discuss some picard stuff we'll try our best to avoid ruining things for people we'll probably take a quick poll in the room to see if if people have watched it or not before we dive in and we'll just be talking about the state of Star Trek in 2020 and beyond. So really excited about that. Again, that's on Saturday at 4.30 p.m. So you can come join us for that. We're going to have our two most recurring uh, hosts to join us. And that's Ray and Zach. So it'll be the four of us for that. You remember when Planet Comic Con was so small it could fit into the Overland Park Trade Center? Yes, I do. I do. I remember that quite well. It has gone from such a small, like one room thing to, you know, 70 plus thousand people, which is just outstanding. So we're excited. Uh, my Our sibling shows, Scre- Screen Heroes and Echo Station also have panels that weekend, Screen Heroes on Friday and Echo Station on Sunday. So you could actually see a Heroes Podcast Network panel every day of the con if you would like. So, yeah, there's going to be plenty of content, and while you're at the convention, you can check out all the different artists, the different cast and crew that are visiting. There's a whole bunch of different cosplay groups that are going to be there. It is it is a fun convention. It's in Bartle Hall in downtown Kansas City, which, for those of you who are unfamiliar, they, they host things like car shows there, where they get hundreds of different vehicles for people to look at. That just gives you an idea of the, of the scale, you know? 
Derek, you and I have joked about this. You know, Anaheim and C2E2 and those big halls get all the attention, but Bartle Hall's not too bad either. It's pretty darn big. Yeah, it's a it's a very large space and it's it's pretty nice. Um, they bring in lots of food trucks inside the building, which is kind of cool. You don't even have to go outside for that, which is nice. And uh, yeah, there's going to be a ton of stuff. Brent Spiner is going to be there this year, uh, which is pretty cool, along with some of the Stranger Things kids and a bunch of uh, voice actors like Ruby and, and things of that nature. So good, good guests, good events. Um, and we will have our panel. So come come say hi to us. It'll be fun. Christopher Eccleston is going to be there and he barely does American events. And he was the ninth yeah. doctor. He's the one that helped bring back modern Doctor Who. Go figure. Yeah, that's a big one. They they do try and get a doctor every year, and I'm pretty sure they've succeeded in that the last six years or so, which is pretty cool. Yeah, but we could talk about playing a Comic Con in Bartle in Bartle Hall quite a bit. So let's let's start diving into Star Trek, uh, specifically the most recent episode of Star Trek Picard. And you know, typically, as those of you who listen, you know, we we tend to give our own ten to twenty second little what we thought, and then we dive into the major spoilers. Uh, so Derek. What is your 10 to 20 second view on the most recent discussion or the most recent episode? All right. So uh, clearly the pace has picked up. This is a very fast paced, action packed episode. There are some really cool things about it, like the return of, of Jerry Ryan and seven of nine. There are also some not so cool things about it. Um, but I do feel like they took some chances and I do want to give them credit where credit is due on that. And there are some cool aliens in this one as well that are that are new, which is pretty cool. So that is my spoiler-free thought. What about you, Greg? Uh, I mostly agree. Um, they well, I definitely agree that the the pace is picked up. It's another episode directed by Jonathan Frakes, which is always kind of fun, uh, and written by Kirsten Byer, which is always good. Yes, um, I got a little bit more of a Star Wars feel from this episode than in many Star Trek episodes ever before. I mean, mostly because of the setting and such, but now that things are speeding up, I, I agree with you. There is a lot more stuff happening, a lot more engagement, a lot more action. The story, again, is probably where you and I are going to spend the most discussion. But that's for the spoiler part, so... that That's my quick summary of the episode. Well then, you know, black alert, spoiler alert, let's, let's dive in then. Um... Do you have a particular place you want to start? I have one in mind if you don't. Um, I have several in my mind, but you know what? I'm going to kick it to you so you can you can start off with this discussion. This is an occasion where I think starting at the beginning is probably best. Um, so this episode kicks off with a fairly intense and gruesome scene where a Starfleet officer is being... Uh, initially seemingly tortured. Of course, we find out later that while, yes, it is torture, there's a different motive behind it. Um, and it is Icheb. Icheb is being torn apart for his Borg parts. And we get to see him have his eyeball pulled out of his head and cut out of his body while he is completely conscious and aware of what's happening. And from my perspective... It is the most gruesome and intense scene Star Trek has ever done. What do you think? Yes. Um, I think above and beyond, it's the most gruesome horror movie related scene I think we've ever seen in Trek. People talked about 
you know, the transformation of Volk, the way they kind of did it with the memories and the flashes was kind of gruesome, but they always kind of did it in a way that was a little bit more subtle. Otherwise, this is without a doubt. I mean, I remember people complaining about Nemesis when they dissolved the Romulan Senate, and that was pretty that was pretty gruesome. But this is obvious. I mean, they cut the they cut the op, like the camera showing them cut the optical nerve as they rip the eye out. That's that's pretty intense. Yeah, um, you know, comparing it to some previous Trek stuff, you know, the the Vogue stuff and uh, spoilers for Star Trek Discovery. Apologies, but. Um, you know, Voke, he volunteered for this procedure. As painful as it may be, as horrible as it may have been, he decided to do it. He chose to do it. This, of course, was completely involuntary um, and did was was essentially torture. While, yes, they wanted to sell the Borg parts, there's also that bit of revenge in there because he was a Borg and taking it out on him as a way of catharsis against the Borg, which has a ton of ethical problems. Um, but I think the idea of it just being so up close and personal and it being so, so painful and shot in a very obvious, clear way was just really intense. And to all of the people out there who want to compare this to the like face exploding, melting in Star Trek TNG's conspiracy. Uh, yeah. When that first came out, that was a pretty shocking scene in 1988, um, or yeah, 88. And, uh, I get that. I, I understand that. However, I think that this is much more realistic. This is much more gruesome and up close and barbaric. Whereas that, especially viewing it in today's eyes and 21st century's eyes, the conspiracy one doesn't age particularly well from a real realism perspective. Well, it doesn't. And it also, you know, conspiracy also has the fact that three minutes before that scene happens, you know, Commander Remick or whatever his name, I believe it's Remick, is he just claymation swallowed a scorpion. So, you know, it's all fake anyways. Like you're you can immediately sense how the framing is different and such. So it's not as horrific. I mean, this it's legitimate torture. And even for the purpose of getting the, the parts, I mean, the no anesthesia and the ripping out the eye. I mean, it's. You can't help but avoid the the gruesome nature of what is happening. Yes. Um, and so Seven shows up. Seven sort of rescues Icheb. Uh, we find out it's Icheb because she, she says his name. Um, and she is able to as rescue him as, as she can. She ends up mercy killing him at his own request, uh, which is incredibly heartbreaking and and as a very sad way to to reintroduce Seven of Nine. Um, but it's a pretty rough scene. It is interesting on a couple of levels. So first off, this is a different actor to play Icheb. Um, this is Casey King is the actor's the actor's name. And so at first, of course, like I didn't recognize the character. He just seemed like someone in a Starfleet uniform. Um, and once uh, once Seven calls him Icheb, you're like, oh, okay, I guess that's Icheb, and I just don't really recognize him. But, uh, you know, Manu was the original Icheb, and a couple of years ago, he made some comments on Twitter about the Anthony Rapp, Kevin Spacey situation that were, at, at a minimum, uh, not tactful and not understanding uh, or compassionate. 
um, on, on the the less the le- the lowest possible end there versus maybe being fairly offensive on the other end of that. And I'm not here to debate that, but I do think it's a possibility that those statements resulted in him not being asked to return. I'm not saying that that's the case. I do not know why they replaced him, but that seems like a reasonable explanation. What do you think? I mean, it would, given the nature and the understood sensitivity with Hollywood and a lot of the stuff that's ongoing and the fact that there's not a lot of trust with Hollywood senior leadership that knew about everything going on is I can understand people being a little bit more sensitive to the fact on let's not try to reopen publicly, like reopen public old wounds, especially with a show like Trek that has, you know, for the most part been able to avoid being dragged into a lot of that mess aside from Anthony Rapp having being, you know, given him credit brave enough to stand up for the abuse he took and being one of the first, people to really publicly speak out in the way he did. And I think, yeah, Star Trek doesn't want to be tied to that negativity. And I don't blame him for that. Yeah. So, I mean, I assume that's their reason. Uh, the only reason I'm not like super confident about that is because Bruce Maddox is also played by a different actor. Um, he is played by John. Is it Ailes or Ellis? Uh, I apologize ales um in this and you know while he he does a a perfectly fine job of course he's not the original the original actor of the character from measure of a man um that is brian brophy and um he i guess looking it up a little bit is a um a theater professor theater teacher excuse me uh now and maybe he's just not acting anymore and he said no, or they didn't even ask him for for whatever reason, or they just chose to recast both of these characters. Um, I, I don't know, but both of these are new actors to those roles. Um, so that aside, so yeah, so that's our introduction to to Seven in this. Uh, it takes place thirteen years in the past, right? So after the events of the attack on Mars. Overall, though, what what are your thoughts on this introduction of Seven? Do you think it was? Uh, a good introduction do you think it was too much what do you what do you think well i you know i'm the kind of person that i'm gonna say i think it was i understand what they're doing and why they did it but i still think it was too much especially with how they built up each towards the end of voyager and there was always kind of that hint of him coming back and wanting to join starfleet and he, he the, the character even talking about that it's an introduction to the fenris rangers which we talked about a couple episode an episode ago which, you know, Fenris Rangers, Wolf Rangers, Warhammer 40k Space Wolves. I'm like, okay, I see the connection. Um, but again, it w- it was a lot. It's a it's a fast way. So here's here's the way I word I word it is it's a fast way to introduce villains that you don't have any sympathy for and you immediately hate. Like there's no redeeming yeah. qualities about somebody when they're torturing somebody and ripping out their organs. There's no, you know what I mean? It's that's why you've been listening to me for years. I've always liked Gold Ducat as a villain because he did evil things, but he always had a little bit of sympathy towards him, like with his daughter and such. Well, at least until uh, until the end. Well, until the end, but yeah, <laughs> up until the end when they were kind of just writing, trying to wrap up all the stories, you were always kind of conflicted on him as a villain. You didn't like him, but you're like, man, he's still pretty neat. Like these people, like there's no, there is zero redemption from something like this, right? It's just, yeah, it, yeah. So basically, this group of people are 
they they find XBs or X Borgs and strip them for parts, essentially, uh, and sell the Borg components on the black market. And in the process, seem to go out of their way to make it as brutal as possible. So yeah, it's absolutely horrific, of course, to kill a person and then take these parts out of them and sell them. That's that's absolutely horrible, right? But that's not horrible enough. These people want um, their victims to be conscious and uh, not subdued in any way, which makes it even even more horrible. But uh, that's our introduction to, to Seven of Nine and the return of her character before we are brought back to um, present day, so to speak, where we are going to Free Cloud with Seven on board Rios's ship. Um, I guess the next bit to, to get to then is Free Cloud itself, or as Ray, my, my wife, like to point out, the Blade Runner world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I always like Ray because I was thinking Canto Bite from Last Jedi or Blade Runner because it felt like a mixture of both. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair comparison too. Um, it, it's very much that kind of like futuristic cyberpunk kind of uh, of tone and aesthetic. Um, lots of little Easter eggs in there that I do want to point out uh, that people have have been noticing and things like that. Uh, one of them is is kind of is like super minor, and that's Mister Mott's hair emporium. Do you remember who Mr. Mott is? <laughs> uh, I do remember Mott, the barber from Next Generation. The Bolian. Yeah, the Bolian, yeah. Um, so I thought that was really kind of cute. I guess Quark has a bar on Free Cloud, um, which is kind of interesting as well. And then there's something called the Red Bolian, which uh, I thought was a really interesting concept because – so. Bullions, as far as we knew it, are all blue, various shades of blue, but blue. Um, and I guess like Andorians, who have blue and white Andorians, there are perhaps actually red Bullions, or maybe he's the red Bullion because it's some unique trait of his. Uh, but yeah, this this whole world is very much like a. Did you, did you ever do you ever watch Futurama? Oh yeah, absolutely. I love Futurama. Do you remember the episode where they go inside the internet? <laughs> yes, because they, they visit the virtual... Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Porn and the pop-up ads and everything. Yeah. That's free cloud. Right? <laughs> that is a good That is a good description. It is free cloud. Um, almost like too much. <laughs> um, exactly the same. But... Uh, but yeah, so like yeah, there's there's literally pop-up ads that are holographic that show up on the ship with them while they're in orbit 
you know, waiting to go down, which I just thought was super interesting. Uh, what did you think about the way they they built Free Cloud? What's I mean, that, your perspective? And that's kind of what I was joking about earlier the the bit of the Star Wars feel, agreeing with Ray and the Blade Runner feel, um, which I know is not exactly Trek, but I I do appreciate and something all of you have been listening. I like it when they inject life into stuff because going, you know, going to a bar and you know. Akron, Ohio is one thing. You expect one kind of environment. Going into a bar or a club in a Las Vegas-style environment, you expect something radically different. And that's what Free Cloud's trying to show, right? It's not... This isn't, you know, Cisco's father's restaurant in New Orleans. It's a bar on a frontier planet. So I like the feel of it. I like, you know... I think the story's kind of goofy, but the overall environment and the overall feel I thought was really good. And speaking of the environment... I could maybe I'm the only person that saw this. Um, Bejazzle, uh, is she like Marina Sirtis's daughter or something? Because she looks like Deanna Troy from Next Generation. So, yeah, I when they first introduced her, and her name's uh, Nectar. Is it Zadigan? 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 I I, I apologize. Um, but she, I actually thought that she was uh, Camilla J- uh, Tahani's sister from The Good Place, but that's a different actor too. Uh, so she just looked really familiar to me and I couldn't place it. And I looked her up and I-, I haven't seen her in anything, but she just has that look that I, I know her, if that makes sense. Yeah, because I was immediately thinking the same thing. I was like, this person seems like a huge actress from somewhere, but yeah, I've never seen her anywhere else before either. Yeah, but she was really good. I mean, she had a really strong presence, um, especially considering that this is, you know, other than flashbacks, the only time we're going to see her, I thought that she was introduced in a really strong and stable way. Um, that was that was believable, if not maybe a little... There was a little bit of soap opera cliché-ness between her and Seven. Um, you know, there's definitely a lot of, like... So I've, I've seen some articles that are like, Seven of Nine confirmed sexuality and things like that. And I certainly feel like they implied that there was a romantic relationship between Bajazzle and Seven. But I don't know if confirmed is the appropriate word because they – I think it could be misinterpreted that maybe they just had a very intimate relationship but it was not romantic or not sexual. We don't really know. And I'm not sure that it's fair to the character to – characters to jump to that conclusion well and that's that's been a problem with modern tv in general is i think a small portion of people try to apply labels to every character on screen no matter what happens which is important for for engagement with people with the the fans but sometimes i'm with you sometimes it's just you know i picard and guinan were have been intimate friends for decades and nobody's ever suspected actual romance between them uh, maybe it was something like that. But so, did you ever play the Mass Effect series? I have not. I own the first game, and I've literally never cracked it open. Okay, Bajazzle is Arya Talok from Mass Effect Two, and when if you, whenever you play Mass Effect Two, you will understand exactly what I'm talking about. It's a, it's basically a powerful female crime lord that exudes a presence and domineering over everybody, despite how powerful you may or may not be. And that's kind of what Bejazzle does, is she essentially runs Free Cloud without actually being in charge of it or something. Interesting, interesting. 
So what did you think about their relationship though? So like, let's like just breaking down Seven's story itself, since we kind of started there, how do you feel about the way they've evolved that character and brought her to present day Star Trek? Is it, is any of it kind of what you thought might happen or are these, you know, just kind of a diversion from your expectations? I mean, it's definitely a diversion from my expectations. And I was thinking about this the other day with talking about Starfleet turning inward, but something so seven on the frontier working with the Fenris Rangers is fine concept and such. But then you start realizing that there's other characters Star Trek has introduced that would also want to defend the weak and innocent, like Captain Janeway, I think, who at this point was an admiral, if she's still in Starfleet. And that's more my problem, is you start asking questions on... So there's like horror on the frontier, and then we're going to see an episode or two in, a, in a, a next week or whatever that Will Riker's just hanging out in a cabin with Deanna Troy. It's like, that doesn't make sense to me. Because these cast and crew, even if they're older, they're still... Old and Starfleet, that's the thing you and I have talked about before. Age in Star Trek is a lot different than being like a 55-year-old player in Major League Baseball. <laughs> you could, right, right. You could be 55, 60 in your 70s or whatever in Starfleet and still provide tremendous value. And so that's where the diversion kind of impacts me of... But then again, I guess you could argue people want to live their lives, but that's that's where it kind of loses me. Well, I mean, obviously we haven't seen Riker and Troy yet, but my my guess going into it, and I guess here's me putting my cards on the table, people, to tell me I'm wrong in a couple weeks, but um, I, I'm going to guess that they left Starfleet around when Picard does. They probably had similar issues and were already trying to balance a family and their careers in Starfleet and decided that if Starfleet was going to abandon the principles that they had dedicated their lives to, then why should they be risking their family for that organization? That would be my guess. And we don't know, you know, what's going on with um, Crusher or Jordy um, or Worf as far as TNG is concerned. On the DS9 side, I mean, who knows what Chief O'Brien is up to or what Ezri is up to, you know, or Bashir. Like, we don't know what any of these other Starfleet officers are up to at this point, they could be anywhere. They could be part of the Rangers as well. You know, um, I mean, Kira could be, you know, back on Bajor for some reason or what have you. We, we don't even know the state of, of all the empires. Like what, what are the Cardassians and Klingons up to? Did the Dominion ever come back to the alpha quadrant? You know, there's a lot of, of questions because this story is so uh, dialed in. It's such a small scale, even though, and we'll get to this in a bit, even though the stakes seem to be incredibly high, the scale is very small. Well, and something you've been saying for the past couple of weeks that I think they desperately need to do is spend 15 or 20 minutes, even if it's like micro updates of what's going on throughout the galaxy, the at least the Alpha and Beta Quadrants. And the reason I mention that is they have established by now for decades of television that the Federation was like a stabilizing factor for the other empires. They were a stabilizing factor after the Romulus war with earth in the 2150s and 2160s. They helped stabilize peace with the Klingons. They helped stabilize peace with the Klingons and Romulans. So then you start asking those questions. You're like, man, but there aren't a lot of not so nice species. And even the intro to the episode with them torturing each to 
get the Borg implants. I get what they're doing. They're doing the connection to the synth attack on Mars. But then you recall that, yeah, you and I talked about how the Zindi attacked Earth, but the brain attacked Starfleet Academy or Starfleet headquarters in DS9 and caused massive damage to the West Coast and we lost millions of people in the war with the Dominion and then we're not out there finding Breen and torturing them. So that's where that's where the diversion it still imp- impacts me. I get what they're doing, but I think I think if they spent time doing a quick update in the rest of the galaxy, it would it might help tie things to better or tie things together. Yeah, I think the Picard series has something on its shoulders that none of the other shows have had to worry about, and that is the state of the universe. And I think the reason is is pretty simple. When TNG came out, there's a 75-ish year gap between TNG and TOS. And so those characters are either dead or just very, very old and retired. Their adventures are over from TOS. So you can move on and show the greater galaxy now. When DS9 comes out, TNG is still on the air. When Voyager comes out, DS9 is still on the air and TNG is still making movies. So these stories are all still being told. And then when Enterprise comes out, it's 100 years before Kirk. So there's nothing to tie it really into other than the first contact film because none of it's happened yet. Discovery, similar situation. It's 10 years before Kirk. So, you know, we don't, it's well past Enterprise, right? It's a century past Enterprise. So those characters are either dead or too old to really have adventures. And TOS hasn't happened yet. Same with the rest of the series. Picard is only 20 years later. So these characters are mostly still alive. Um, a lot of the of the younger characters would be in pretty prominent positions. People like Harry Kim, for example, Ezri Dax are young people who should be captains at this point. You know, um, a lot of our other characters could be admirals at this point. What ha- you know, Janeway would be an admiral, you know, unless she retired. Um, and so when you're only doing this twenty year jump, you have people asking these questions because. These characters are still around, and a lot of them could still be contributing in pretty significant ways. The other shows just haven't had to worry about that. No, and I, I think you, you bring up a good point of not just the other characters, but even when we're talking about the other empires in, in space, whatever you want to call them, the Klingon Empire and such, uh, the Cardassian Union. Like Even though the Klingons and Federation were allies at the end of the Dominion War, it doesn't mean they stayed allies. And what I mean by that is there's plenty of historical context in Star Trek and even regular Earth history. You know, World War II, we're allied to the Soviet Union. And then the moment the war ends with Japan, the Soviet Union and America are enemies. It doesn't even take a day. Mm-hmm. Is right. yeah. With the collapse of the Romulan Empire, do we legitimately believe that the Klingons would be like, you know what? We're not going to expand. We're just going to keep what we got. It just, it doesn't make sense with what we know of Klingon history. Well, no, and I think the Klingons definitely would have tried to take over chunks of Romulan space after the supernova, you know, basically decimated them, which brings us to an interesting conversation about theories that are roaming. People think that the Romulans are are this conspiracy behind everything, and they caused the android synth attack, and they wanted their their empire at least the tal shiar wanted their empire in this state and i just don't buy that because why would you want to make yourselves vulnerable to the klingons and the cardassians when you were literally a force to be reckoned with reckoned with prior to the supernova i mean they were the 
the linchpin on the Dominion War. We needed the Romulans to balance the sides, and now they're nothing. Damn it, you just took it. I was going to say that. Sorry. We, we don't win the Dominion <laughs> War without the Romulans. No. And they, Picard, Picard, Cisco even says that in one of the episodes, because, you know, how they got him to join was a bit of subterfuge. But he basically, I think there's a comment, he's like, you know, after today, I believe we've eventually, we will eventually win this war now. And you're right, the Tal Shiar, the Zod Baj winning the Romulans to be weak doesn't make sense, especially when, you know, we know a lot of the Alpha Quadrant and we know somewhat of the Beta Quadrant, but there's always new species out there that are just you know threatening you remember transfigurations from next generation that alien with the that turned into the light the light the energy energy being of light mm-hmm. uh his species that could apparently stop you know the enterprise from breathing just by hitting a button so there are other species out there that are powerful that we still haven't been introduced to so yeah the tal shiar wanting that is does it's a it's a okay conspiracy but it's it's like the conspiracy of okay any conspiracy like i joke about if you're a project manager try getting 10 people to keep the same secret doesn't work (laughs) so right the tal shiar just doesn't make sense to me wanting to destroy their own romulan empire well, especially when, even if you forget new species, there's just so many current species, right? We've talked about the Klingons, but the Cardassians were in rough shape after the Dominion War. You don't think they'd want to get some territory back, resources back. You've got the the Breen, as you mentioned. There's the Tholians. The Tholians have been left mostly out of Star Trek lore for the last, you know, 30 years. They're brought up from time to time, but they're mostly ignored. But they're an incredibly advanced and powerful race, species, um, so who knows what they're up to, you know? And then the Dominion are on the other are are, are right there. Are they going to really be content? Did Odo really like come home and they're just going to chill? The founders are going to chill. Um, and let's look at the Borg for a moment. If the Borg have changed, if the Borg have evolved more, and we're and the Romulans want to study that more. Where are the Borg? Are they ignoring the Alpha and Beta Quadrants now? Have they gone in a different direction, right? Like, don't just tell me that they've changed. Show me what that means. Well, and you and I have joked about that, is even the end of DS9, the, yeah, sure, the Dominion surrendered on the Alpha side of the Quadrant, but we never damaged them in the Gamma Quadrant at all. We didn't take any of their territory. We didn't take any, destroy any of their planets or shipyards. So what if the Dominion came screaming out of the wormhole right now? And that's the thing where you've been talking about. It's like even a little update on the status of the galaxy would be would be helpful. Maybe it turns out that the 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 wormholes still stealth mind or something. I don't know, but you could just have somebody make it in a passing comment, right? Yeah, I mean the show still has a lot to explain, and uh, let's get back to the episode at hand because I don't want to ignore too much of it. So let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue focusing on Stardust City Rag. Recently on the Heroes Podcast Network, Echo Station. Well, what's the main think... what's the main planet that Endor? The forest moon of Endor. It's a moon, so it's there's a major planet. Obviously, that it is the forest moon of Endor. Is Endor the actual planet then? See, th- isn't that confusing? <laughs> yes. Is it the forest moon of the planet Endor, or is it the forest moon called Endor? Kaiju Curry House. Because I'm just wondering, are Pokemon Kaiju? They are pocket monsters. They are pocket monsters, Paul. They're, pocket, they're monsters, yeah, aren't they? But, um, just... They are yokai, officially. <laughs> yokai. 
Yeah, so, um... What's like... a yokai? Screen heroes. If the MCU gets that, then I really think that Space Jam needs to be part of the DCEU. Yes! Okay, because... <laughs> they have a big Marvel versus DC crossover <laughs> where Air Bud takes on Space Jam. Man, we should write for these companies. <laughs> That's what it comes, it's Air Bud versus Bugs Bunny. That's, That's what it's right. all come down to. One-on-one. Yes, done. All right. And then, like, at the end, it's Galactus versus LeBron James. And Squirrel Girl wins. <laughs> Red shirts and runabouts. Something we've talked about before and other people have, but there's, there's so much of real-life history involved with Star Trek. From Gene Roddenberry's days, his time in the military as, a, as a, on a bomber pilot, as a bomber crewman, you know, James Doohan serving, all these people and all these real-life events that have impacted things. That's very realistic of political and military leaders kind of resigning in protest at a decision they can't control. Subscribe today at heroespodcast.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, Podcast Addict, and more. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires goal for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Okay, so let's talk about the episode. Episode five. Um, let's talk about the actual mission down to Free Cloud. Uh, how do you think the mission went? Do you think that it it worked for you there the kind of the, the disguises and the whole plan what are your thoughts on that um okay unpopular comment i thought the disguises were kind of stupid um it's always fun seeing new costumes and new characters and all that jazz but the reason it runs into a problem with me is all they did for picard was give him like a hat a scar and an eye patch but and, and, and an accent and a, <laughs> and a very bizarre french accent uh but this Bejazzle woman kind of seemed pretty intelligent, pretty smart, and pretty well-connected and well-informed. I'm surprised she didn't see right through Picard's the, you know, eye patch in two seconds is my concern. Now, the heist, the whole heist, you know, item of using somebody as bait to get what you need, that's kind of a good tried-and-true method, and Star Trek's done it a couple times before, even. Um... Seven of Nine, I think, is actually was my favorite part of the whole episode, though, even despite the whole thing with Echeb. But on the planet itself, a free cloud, what I will compliment them on is it's something we haven't really seen in Star Trek before, and I do like it when they take chances with trying to do something new and risky. So they deserve a lot of credit for that. No matter Whether it works or not, take chances now and then, and sometimes it can work out well. 
Yes, and I do really want to hit on that, that they really took chances in this episode. For better or for worse, they really tried to step out of the box and do something unique and tonally different from what Star Trek usually does, which I really did appreciate. Um, I definitely agree with you that I think Seven is the best part of this episode. Jerry Ryan just freaking brings it, and she's great, and it's so good to see her again and see how far her character has come, because... You know, Voyager was a very confined space, and there isn't a lot of room to grow for anybody there. I mean, Harry Kim knows that better than anyone. Uh, Ensign Harry Kim, that is. And to see that it's been 20 years since Voyager's been home, what is she doing, right? And I think it was easy for all of us to just assume, well, she's a science officer on a Federation, you know, starship. That's just the easy answer. But Maybe that doesn't make sense. I think her motives here are actually really great. And I think the way she was written is super believable and realistic and emotional for a character that has been trying to reclaim their emotion and their humanity for the last 20-ish years. The exchange that she has with Picard, um, and the, I, I got the quote here, I just wanted to... Um, to get this right here. So she asks Picard, she goes, after they brought you back from your time in the collective, do you honestly feel that you regained your humanity? And Picard says, yes. She responds, all of it. And he kind of shakes his head and says, no, but we're both working on it. Aren't we? And then she says every damn day of my life. And that exchange is so unique and so special because nobody else can have that conversation for characters that we know. And, it's emotional and it's powerful and it's real and it helps set kind of the weight for what these two have been through. And that even though Picard's was for such a short time and it was 30 years ago, it still kind of hangs with him every day. Yeah. Which is the classic use of, you know, PTSD where people even in modern society and veterans coming back or firefighters or whoever, whoever has PTSD, everybody I've ever met, and it's not a whole slew of people. They've admitted that they may have resolved 90% of their challenges, but they are, they're never fully recovered to where they were before the traumatic event because traumatic events change people and change the direction of their lives. I think that's a very real, uh, what, the thing about Seven's introduction that does bother me is the use of Echeb is a very critical way of kind of punching somebody in the gut. And they talk about that when she's when she is dealing with Bejazzle. She's like, you know, he was a son to me. It's a good emotional connection, but then you, your brain reminds you that so Bejazzle's organization or whatever, even back then, was kidnapped a Starfleet officer and tortured him and ripped him apart and suffered zero consequences. Like that's where the story the story itself doesn't work for me but the emotions do if that makes any sense yeah i think it's just another example of starfleet just pulling back from the galaxy and not going out being very isolationalist um very reflective of the united states after world war one prior to pearl harbor um and I, I i think i think the key here is seven and picard are almost mirrors of each other in this because they've both been through similar things. And, um, you know, she says it perfectly well when she beams back down to kill, uh, to kill Jay is that, you know, she 
doesn't think everyone deserves mercy. She doesn't think that everybody deserves to have you know lighter consequences for their actions that revenge and murdering jay is sometimes justice in her mind but not to picard and she says somebody out here ought to have a little hope and i think that's the key i think that kind of is the picard character in a nutshell is that no matter how dire a situation is no matter how the cards are stacked he tries to do the right thing he has hope for the future and hope for a better galaxy the one that they used to have that was always striving to be better that's who he is he is the mission of the real federation well and that's again another good example that i wanted to kind of acknowledge was starfleet turning inward on the leadership level makes sense but they even introduced some of the younger characters early on at you know starfleet headquarters you know the young African American guy that was didn't know who Picard was, but he was pretty, he was pretty you know engaging. He was smiling. He was interactive, and that's only one character we saw. We know there's going to be more people in Starfleet that want to do good and want to believe in doing good. And I think, and I have no, you know, and I know saying this is kind of unpopular, where not to you, just in general. I get how they've changed Star Trek for the modern world, and to touch on modern topics. But I always kind of preferred Roddenberry's image of optimism for the future. And so what they need to do with Picard, and maybe this is going to happen, is he can be that inspiration to bring Starfleet out of its shadows or something and want to go back and start doing good. Maybe. I would actually prefer if it wasn't somebody like Picard. If Picard was just a catalyst, right? But then it's Seven of Nine doing something good and Raffi and Rios and all these people, you know, doing that one good act to inspire others to do good. That's kind of what I hope they end up end up doing. Well, I think part of it is we should always be striving for that future. But sometimes when we get really close to it, we become a little docile, a little content, right? And things can slip away because we've gotten comfortable. And I think it's important that there are people like Picard who are never done. They're never comfortable. They always want the next better thing, the next improvement, because – the future that we want to strive for can never truly be achieved. There's always ways we can be better, right? And I think this shows that some people become comfortable and content, and then we can take a few steps back. And so we always have to have that fight. We always have to have that work forward to keep that progress moving. Um, but I think we should talk about Rafi because her her story has some definition to it here that I think is important. My one complaint for it is that it, as emotional as it is and as damn good as, as Michelle Hurd is in the scene that I want to discuss, um, it kind of felt like they put it in just so her and Picard could have had um, some friction early on. So she wants to go to Free Cloud. We finally find out it's because her son is on Free Cloud. And she wants to be in his life, and he knows that she, that he's about to have a, a child, so she's going to be a grandmother, and she wants to be part of that. And we learn that part of why she was in the desert all alone is because she had substance abuse problems, um, and she's an addict, and she's been struggling through that. And her husband and son more or less left her because of the destructive nature of her addiction, and. She's trying to be over that. She comes to him and says that she's clean. Now, 
there's, I guess, some debate that could be had for that since we just saw her smoking something in the desert a couple of ep- episodes ago. We don't know what it was, really. So maybe it was just something as simple as like a tobacco, or maybe it was a some type of drug substance. I don't know. But um, he basically tells her no, and she has to leave, and she ends up coming back onto the ship. How do you feel about that subplot, Greg? I mean, I again, it's something I appreciate they're doing, but the biggest complaint you've Unfortunately, Derek has, for our listeners out there, Derek's had to listen to me whine about this for about three years now, is <laughs> it's another example of stuff we're being told and not shown. And that's where I have a hard time developing the human connection on what we're seeing on screen versus what we're being told on screen. But I get what they're trying to do to show her struggles and all this and hiding in the desert and trying to engage with her son but for the son and husband, or for the you know we don't know about the husband, but for the son to react the way he did, I you know it makes me curious. I'm like, what else happened in her background? Because you know modern society shows drug addiction is horrific for people and damages families, but modern society today also shows that re- rehabilitation from those addictions is almost universally cheered and supported. So it makes me wonder if more stuff happened in her past that we just don't know about. Maybe maybe her son was injured because of her addiction or something. You know what I mean? Something along those lines that we just don't know about. Well, it gets additionally complicated in this context because we know that 14 years ago, she was not just in Starfleet, but the first officer on a flagship under Admiral Picard. So one of the most advanced ships in the fleet on one of the largest, most complex missions the Starfleet has ever set out for. So she must have been a good officer. She must have been reliable and on top of things. But when she was kicked out, I guess then things could have fallen apart. Yeah, I I mean, I guess. But again, that's the problem with being told and not shown is we don't know exactly what the impacts were. Uh, It's... Starfleet's always kind of touched a little bit on alcoholism, but not a whole. We've never really gotten into it that much. Um, So substance abuse in Star Trek has always been kind of on the fringe. Uh, Remember Little Green Men from DS9 when the Ferengi go back in time? Oh, totally. And they realize that the humans, he's like, what the hell is that smell? (laughs) And Nog's like, oh, it's tobacco. And he's trying to explain it. He's like, these people purposely poisoned themselves? (laughs) Um, it's just a nice little touch on addiction and how, you know, and how tobacco impacts the mind, even to our people today. It's just, again, Starfleet's never really talked about it a lot. So we don't know what the overall impact of, we don't know what her addiction was. So, I mean, the biggest addiction plots that we have, I think, in Star Trek are, of course, the, um, the, uh, the Gem Hadar and the Ketrasol White in DS9, but also Barkley. And his hollow addiction in TNG and Voyager. But that's really all that we really get. And those are both very sci-fi addictions. uh, Which Star Trek's always done. That's the allegory, right? But I think my biggest problem with Rafi's story here is that while the most emotionally charged part of the series in its first five episodes is her scene with her son for me, the whole plot seemed to only exist to make sure she's on the ship with Picard, 
even though they didn't need to have them at odds. We, we don't know their relationship ahead of time. This is all new. So putting them at odds just to force her to go on the mission later, it just seems kind of maybe a little convoluted. No, it is definitely contrived for convenience purposes. And again, maybe if they would have gone to the more detail, it would have made more sense. But it does just kind of feel like, oh, what's the example? It's not Chekhov's gun. It's something else where they're just trying to find something for the characters to do. It kind of gave me that impression. Mm-hmm. Well, she's here. She's not part of the mission, but we got to give her something to do now that she's left the ship. Oh, look, and now tie this to this to this. And you're like, eh, it doesn't, doesn't really make sense. And in this particular case, like, I'm very careful about using the word contrived when we talk about fictional works because technically they're all completely contrived, right? But I think in this case, the issue here is like over-engineering and over-complication. Picard doesn't have many people on his side, right? His two Romulan friends stayed on Earth and they were really the only ones who supported him on, on anything. And so I think having Rafi be on his team would not have watered anything down would not have really changed much of the story other than removing this extra complication that doesn't seem to go anywhere no it almost would have made more for more of a better more challenging story if raffi goes on the mission and she's exposed because again without knowing the addiction we can't express what the challenges are but putting her in a bar style environment if maybe her addiction was alcoholism or gambling or whatever putting her in that environment kind of compromises the mission there you go but it makes it a little bit more risky and like we haven't even talked about uh gretchen and bruce maddox yet i mean because that gretchen who's gretchen oh gretchen. You mean agnes agnes yeah i don't know why I, keep... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why i keep calling her gretchen but uh so agnes <laughs> No, I remember. It's because last week I talked about the twins, Gretchen and Agnes. Um, oh, right, right. right. <laughs> it's like we haven't even talked. We haven't even talked about Agnes and Bruce Maddox yet. Well, that's what we should probably move on to because Elnor is more or less non-existent in this episode, and uh, Rios does a perfectly fine job at moving the story along. I really like Cabrera a lot in this show, but he's more serving as just like keeping the story moving in this particular episode. So yeah, let's talk Maddox and Girardi. Where do you want to start? Well, really quick. I had to rewatch it like five times. I swear Elnor is speaking Elvish at one point when he's singing that little song and he's throwing his dance. He's he's doing his dance. That is, (laughs) that is Tolkien Elvish, but moving on. Uh, Yeah. Girardi, (laughs) Girardi and uh, Bruce Maddox. I kind of, I actually like the flashback of, the potential romance between the two. I mean, we kiss, but we don't know if they're desperately in love or something. But that plays on a, a very, very realistically common trope in society where the apprentice falls in love with the mentor and vice versa. And mm-hmm. regardless of the potential age difference, that's not uncommon. That's That happens with humans in real life even today on people at work they don't intend to have it but it just happens so i kind of like yeah i mean their their romantic relationship is is fine right we don't really know enough about it for me to have a strong opinion either way the problem that i have with it is how the episode essentially ends i have two major issues with what happens here so we get maddox 
We get Maddox long enough for Picard to find out the name of Soji and her location, which is really all we needed him for, right? So we get just enough of that. Uh, sure, there's more information I would like to have, like, are there more sets of, of androids and things like that? Uh, because the Romulans are certainly looking for more. But then Girardi kills Maddox. And two big things come up here. One is that romantic relationship. I guess there's th- three big things. The romantic relationship. So they had something that was real and she decided to still murder him. There's the EMH who pops up twice and somehow doesn't have anything in his code that forces him to intervene or catalog or anything what's going on here. She's just able to murder this person with him there on and off and he has no control or or anything. And it's all hinged on the third issue, which is she's been told all of this stuff that she wishes she didn't know, which I assume is her alluding to what the Romulans have told her about the Destroyer, which I have a lot of concerns about. Not only that, but to comment on the EMH part, EMH part, goodness, Uh, what Derek's referencing to everybody, if you don't recall, after watching the episode, is... Uh, Agnes was having like blood pressure issues and heart palpitations and the EMH automatically activated and said, Hey, you're having this medical disorder. Do you need assistance? Hey, you're having a psychological order. Do you need assistance? But as Bruce Maddox's life signs start fading, the EMH doesn't automatically turn on, which immediately conflicts with what just happened five minutes ago. But, and when Derek, I agree with you, when you're talking murder, this isn't like she kills him out of revenge or something. It's just straight flat out murder. And, again, I'm almost concerned that this is going to turn into an issue where Soji isn't the eventual quote-unquote destroyer, that it's going to actually be like Agnes or something goofy like that. And that's why she killed him, is that she realized, oh, I'm an android, and I just figured it out. I'm like, oh, I hope they don't do that, because that'd be kind of... Then it's the whole Bruce Maddox making an android that falls in love with him, which is kind of weird. But... I like why does she kill him? I mean, we without that motive, we have no really good way of understanding. Well, I, I think the the issue here at the EMH is the EMH comes on twice while Maddox is dying, and at no point does he like make a record of that information. And she can still turn him off both times when he knows that she is not administering the treatment required to keep this person alive. And at a minimum, you would think that would sound an alarm that would notify the captain of the ship um, or something, right, to bring people into this emergency situation. And that that's not really believable that that doesn't work. But the fact that her murdering someone she was romantic with and very emotional about, even if she's not in love with him, she cares deeply about him, that she's going to kill him because of some stuff she's been told by a secret organization about – this prophecy of destruction hinges on another issue that I have, which is this idea of the destroyer and the idea that some Android is going to cause cataclysmic destruction across the galaxy. When we have had the dominion and the Borg and the doomsday machine and all these massive forces, but this one Android, that's really what the Romulans are worried about is just comes off kind of silly. Well, not only is it silly, I'm, 
and I don't like to use this term, but I'm going to. It's lazy because Star Trek Season 2 or Discovery Season 2 just ended with basically an attempted AI takeover of Starfleet. And if that's where they're going again with like another synthetic AI evil monster man, monster woman, whatever you want to call it, that's just lazy. I mean, we've seen it plenty of times, right? We've seen it in plenty of other content, plenty of other stories, you know, whether it's Terminator or The Matrix or whatever you want to say. Season 2 Discovery just did that, right? Unless, I, unless I'm dreaming it. No, 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 because Control was my largest problem with Season 2 of Discovery because there are some absolutely, truly incredible things in Season 2 of Discovery as far as the cast are concerned and the sets are concerned. And, like, I mean, come on, just, like, Anson Mount and Rebecca Romaine and Ethan Peck are just these incredible additions to the show, and there's just so much amazing stuff that goes on there. And then you throw in Control, which is a Borg knockoff, that gets defeated at the end of the season and spoiler alerts, I'm sorry, gets defeated at the end of the season and they still do the thousand year time jump. And now we're in Picard and it's another artificial life form that's going to bring destruction to the galaxy. And the only thing I can think of that makes that not seem silly and, and lazy for, for lack of a better word is if it is control. Okay. If it's going to control be if it's control, I'm going to need a lot more bourbon to survive <laughs> to survive season three of Discovery and season two of Picard because, you know, I just, how can I word this? So as everybody's probably aware, I'm a fan of multi, multiple different types of sci-fi. Derek and I have joked about that. We both love all different types of sci-fi. Uh, the Warhammer storyline that I love so much, one of the greatest evil villains, in the, villains for lack of a better term, opponents in the storyline is a race called Tyranids, which is like the Zerg from Starcraft. They're organic expansionist enemies right it's not just machine ais which exist but the tyranids are like the huge threat I'm like why couldn't they do if they're going to create a big galaxy threat like even the dominion i never actually thought the dominion were a threat to the galaxy but they were a good opposing opposing factor for the federation if that makes sense the borg right because the old school borg were a threat to the galaxy and I think that's part of the issue is like not every bad guy has to be galaxy ending, right? I think is is part of the the issue here. Um, the Dominion were an incredible force, but they weren't going to destroy the galaxy, right? And I think that making every destroyer an artificial life form is. <sighs> Is, is getting a little stale, right? Like it was the Borg and now it's control and now it's whatever these androids are. And I need more than that. And I also don't necessarily need every mission to save the galaxy. They even make that reference in Picard multiple times, you know, that he's off saving the galaxy again. And Picard did many, many things on TNG and in the films that were important, but they weren't saving the galaxy. Sometimes his best moments were just saving one life form. Oh, that's you just reminded me something I put on my notes I was going to talk about. So this episode is pretty horrific with the torture and the gore and such with Echeb. Remember there was an episode of Deep Space Nine, my friend, where the cast and crew of DS9 played a game of baseball against the Vulcans. Ah, so good. We will never see an episode like that ever again. Probably not, but go Niners. Yeah, but go Niners. And that's what I mean is not every episode needs to be this galactic impacting etc etc villain that wants to destroy the all life of the universe type thing and 
you know, the days of Star Trek II Wrath of Khan villain, where Khan was a great villain, and even the Klingon commander in Star Trek Three. people can argue about Star Trek Three or not, I still like the movie quite a bit. And like you said, we, we've been saying, I never thought that Dominion wanted to destroy the galaxy. Quite the opposite. If you signed a non-aggression pact with them, they would muscle around, but they kind of left you alone. They were leaving the Romulans alone for a while, actually. Well, I think part of it is like, in Discovery Season 1, you had uh, Magic to, ma- to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, which was the Harry Mudd t- like time loop episode, right? And what's at stake here? Well, he's just stealing some stuff, you know? It's it's not ethical, of course, but there's not going to be any, like, regime collapse or, or something like that. No war. And I think that that kind of storytelling is still important. I think it's important to do the ethically right thing without the alternative being complete and utter death of everybody. Right. Like the original series all the way through to Enterprise had moments of the right thing to do is to save this small group of people. Like look at Insurrection, right? The Baku, it's 300 people, right? And the the Admiral who's the bad guy says we're only talking about 300 people. And it's Picard who says, how many does it take before it's wrong? A thousand, a million, right? Because it shouldn't be about cataclysmic destruction all the time it's sometimes about doing the right thing even for one person yeah it's a good reference even to the star trek next generation episode with the shellyak and the shellyak are only in want to take over one colony and deal with the whole treaty nonsense but the whole point of that episode was a species we've never seen before that is very particular to protocol and there's like no there's no combat there's no galaxy spanning threat it's them going, you, the treaty you signed gave us this planet, blah, blah, blah. And the whole point of the episode is Picard is Picard and Troy digging into the, the treaty, right? And that's it. And that's the villain. The, right, villain right. the villain is essentially not the Sheliak. It's the treaty they signed with the Sheliak. <laughs> right, it's legal documentation. And I, I get that that's not necessarily exciting television, but I think the problem is just compounded here because the last two seasons of Star Trek – Season one of Picard and season two of Discovery have been about galaxy ending consequences. Whereas like season one of Discovery was really about just the one ship surviving and getting home from the mirror universe, right? Or, you know, just previous Star Trek being about saving a species or a group of, uh, or a subgroup, or even like Measure of a Man is about saving one person. It's about data, right? Um, And the inner light is about remembering a society that did exist, right? So their memory can live on, things of that nature. And while the finale of TNG is, of course, about saving all of humanity, um, you know, I think at the time that was a relatively like big deal in Star Trek. It had never really been done like that before. And you had Q helping the entire time and all of that. So I just, I don't, want the destroyer to end up being so hyperbolic no i agree with you i I don't want it to be some rogue ai or some ai army that reawakens all the synths or the androids or something or it takes over all the starfleet ships it's just you know like i said before remember voyager it's like we're never going to see anything like a captain proton on screen again are we who knows? Who knows? That would be a great short Trek series, though, just to do like short, like seven, ten minute episodes of Captain Proton. 
I'd watch that. I'd watch that too. I mean, and maybe that's what they could do to describe the rest of the universe. Is just create some seven, ten minute episodes of, of like you said, the the uh, what's the name of the artificer or the librarian or the custodian or whatever. The the index. The index. Just have a have five episodes, seven to ten minutes long of the index talking to a group of students on the status of the galaxy. So it gives us an idea of what the hell's happening. So we can actually determine who we're who we're kind of rooting for and who we're because right now I don't think anybody's like oh yeah go Starfleet Starfleet's the best you're like yeah Starfleet's kind of kind of being jerks right all right so is there anything else that you want to talk about or cover on Stardust City Rag before we close things up for the day no other than the fact that Picard is obviously following the uh, Star Trek Discovery naming. <laughs> factor for their episodes which is fine you know not every episode needs to just be called haven or you know eagle three or something so it's i'm still interested in watching the show and again what do i always say you can love something and still criticize it so i'm just curious to see where we go from here yeah i'm with you um i've uh you know there's things i've really liked i do really love this cast i think everyone that they've brought on has just been really solid on screen with really good presence and I've enjoyed that quite a bit. This episode was more entertaining, you know, so I appreciated where they were going from that standpoint. So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, things kind of go in, in a positive direction for the second half of the season here. And we just, we get some answers because at this point it's really just a lot of questions, but uh, we will be back next week to talk about episode six of Star Trek Picard, which is entitled the impossible box. So we'll have to see what that's all about. I'm assuming it's not in reference to just the Borg Cube, but something more specific. Hopefully it's something more specific. If it's just a Borg Cube, then wah, wah. <laughs> All right. So uh, one last thing, of course, is we have a user forum out on Facebook that we would love for you to come and talk to Trek, talk about Trek with us. You can go out to Red Shirts and Runabouts under Groups, facebook.com slash groups slash Red Shirts and Runabouts, the word and. Uh, you can come talk Trek with us out there. And of course you can hit us up on Twitter at red shirts pod or at heroes podcasts on Facebook. We're at heroespodcasts.com. You can find our shows on Spotify, Apple podcasts, podcast addict, Spreaker, and more Greg, uh, where can people find you? Well, if they're not going to use the Facebook red shirts and runabout forums, you can find me on Twitter at the underscore bitter steel. You'll see a little, uh, animated picture of what i look like derek and i went to a pretty good artist to get get our effigies drip drum driven drawn so that's where you can find me <laughs> awesome and of course i'm the star trek dude on twitter and facebook as well one final plug of course is if you enjoy our show and you would like to support us in some way that is different than following us on social media and sharing our content on social media uh i there's three things you can do one is go out to uh, Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating uh, on our podcast out there. It's still the number one way people listen to shows. And if you give us a rating, we, regardless of what it is, we promise to give you a shout out on the show. We might even read your review as long as it's not super inappropriate. Um, the other two ways are financial if you want to kick us a few bucks. We have a coffee, ko-fi dot com slash heroes podcasts if you want to throw a couple of bucks our way and we also have a patreon patreon.com slash heroes podcasts we have two tiers out there including our new premium tier which gets you access to our episodes and all of the shows on the heroes podcast network early and ad free 
because if you listen um, through our other means, you'll get uh, ads from time to time. So those are the things you can do. Otherwise, we will catch you next week to talk The Impossible Box. Greg, it's been good talking to you. Good talking to you and to all of everybody out there listening. We will talk to you soon. 